0: Ever thought about the fact that you're only ever one bad decision away from completely changing the course of your life and I don't mean in the more obvious way like making the decision to drink and drive I mean the subtle decisions you make that lead to your life spiraling towards tragedy the ones that in the moment you don't even know are a bad choice in 2017 33-year-old Taylor Wright made a decision that unwittingly set her on the path towards her own murder. And it's one you've made countless times in your own life, the decision to trust someone close to you. Welcome to the podcast that reminds you, it isn't the boogeyman you should be worried about. It's the stranger you know. When Taylor Wright met the man she would eventually marry in 2003, a man named Jeff Wright, she thought she knew where her life was headed, a life where she was doing what she loved and starting a family. Taylor was the kind of woman who wasn't scared of two things most people are scared of, guns and bad guys. So naturally, after graduating college with a degree in criminal justice, she decided that becoming a law enforcement officer was the job for her. She was sworn in as a police officer with the Jacksonville Police Department in North Carolina in 2008, and she must have felt then like she was exactly where she needed to be. Married to Jeff, starting her dream job, and soon enough becoming a mother to a little boy named Drake. And becoming a mom, that seemed to bring out the very best in Taylor. She adored her son, and Taylor wasn't a good mother, she was a great one. She had a profound love for Drake that was obvious in everything she did. By some reports, Taylor had had a rough upbringing herself. She had been removed from her parents' care at the age of 13 and placed into foster care before she was adopted at age 14. So it seems like Taylor's dedication and attentiveness to Drake was her way of giving him the kind of love and support she didn't always have herself during her early childhood. But things began to change for Taylor starting in 2015. For one thing, she found herself divorcing Jeff after 10 years of marriage, and their divorce was anything but amicable. There are some unverified reports online about what exactly led them to separate, but In the end, it would take 18 months of contentious divorce proceedings before their separation would be finalized. By the end of it all, Taylor found herself divorced and living in Pensacola, Florida. And her marriage status, that wasn't the only thing that had changed for her. By this time, she's also no longer a police officer. Instead, she had begun working as a private investigator and she loved what she was doing working as a PI really allowed her to put the skills she had learned in law enforcement to good use. But what really stood out to those who interacted with her on the job was how willing she was to do whatever it took to get the job done. Her boss at the time would later share a story on Dateline about Taylor and how she had called him while perched up in a tree 50 feet high, hidden from view as she conducted surveillance but that's just how Taylor was. She was small in stature, weighing only 120 pounds soaking wet, but she was fierce. Anyone who met her would know she was a force to be reckoned with, but yet she still had this charm to her that made complete strangers let their guard down around her. Another thing that had changed was Taylor's romantic preference for men. This time, when she started to date again after her divorce, it's to a woman named Cassandra Waller. In September 2017, Taylor is invested enough in her relationship with Cassandra that she agrees to move in with her. But while Taylor was happy in her new relationship and looking forward to starting a new chapter in her life, there were still issues from her divorce that she was dealing with that kept her from truly making a fresh start. The divorce which had been finalized in 2016, had been recently reopened by her ex-husband, Jeff, who had filed a motion for contempt against Taylor over a dispute about money Taylor had withdrawn from a joint bank account. While the divorce was ongoing, the bank account had been frozen as a marital asset, but when the divorce was finalized and Taylor regained access to it, she withdrew a large sum of money, $100,000 to be exact and Jeff was not happy about it. So he decided to take her back to court over the money. And aside from this disagreement, Taylor was also behind on child support money she owed Jeff for their son Drake, who under the custody agreement was primarily residing with Jeff in North Carolina. So it's safe to say that in the midst of Taylor moving in with Cassandra, she had a lot on her mind. On Friday, September 8th, Taylor and Cassandra each had their own agenda for the day. Cassandra, who worked as a school administrator, had some things she needed to get done, and Taylor planned to spend her day with a close friend of hers, Ashley MacArthur. As the couple kissed each other goodbye, Cassandra knew they wouldn't reconnect until later that afternoon. Still, she made sure to check in on Taylor throughout the day. But she finds it odd when Taylor stops responding to her text messages around 11.30 that morning. So she texts Ashley later in the afternoon to make sure all was well. Ashley calls Cassandra and tells her Taylor was having a rough day and had been really emotional over all of the court stuff going on. So they had decided to go ride horses at a farm owned by Ashley's family out in Milton. To Cassandra, Taylor going to ride horses with her friend Ashley sounded like a good way for her to blow off steam, especially given all the stress she had been recently under. So she tells Ashley to let Taylor know that she had tried to reach her, and to tell Taylor to give her a call back when she gets a chance. But hours pass with still no communication from Taylor though, and it's at this point that Cassandra starts feeling really annoyed with her. They had plans to meet for dinner, so after trying and failing yet again to reach Taylor on her cell, she reaches out to Ashley. This time, though, Ashley's response is surprising. She tells Cassandra that Taylor wasn't with her anymore. After getting back to Ashley's house from their trip to the farm, Taylor had taken an Uber downtown to grab a drink, telling Ashley she needed it to help with all the stress she was dealing with. It isn't long after this call with Ashley that Cassandra finally gets a response from Taylor, except it isn't one she was expecting. Taylor texts her that she needs a few days to clear her head, to get her life organized and back on track. And Taylor's text throws Cassandra, who had no warning that Taylor had any intention of taking off for some time to herself. Cassandra is confused, and she struggles to make sense of it, but she accepts it, for that night at least. That was Friday night. By Sunday, Taylor is still not back, and Cassandra starts to feel really uneasy about all of it. Why would Taylor decide to disappear in the middle of literally moving all her belongings into Cassandra's home? That day, on the 10th, Cassandra decides to trust her instinct that something wasn't right, and she calls the police. But when she shares certain details about Taylor, like the fact that she was dealing with a bitter divorce, and that she was a private investigator who had once told her that she knew how to disappear, police immediately reached the obvious conclusion that Taylor had likely gone missing voluntarily. She was dealing with a lot, so it made sense. But not to Cassandra. None of it made sense. She calls around to different hospitals to make sure Taylor hadn't been in an accident. And she even reaches out to Taylor's ex-husband, Jeff, who's living in North Carolina at the time, to ask him if he had heard from her. But he hadn't. And his response to Taylor disappearing it's less than comforting for Cassandra. He warned her that involving the police may have been a mistake and would likely anger Taylor when she found out. Remember, Taylor had a career in law enforcement, and although she wasn't a police officer at the time, if she ever decided to reenter the force, a report of her going missing would need some explaining. But Cassandra can't shake the feeling that something bad could have happened to Taylor. And maybe that's why she had vanished so abruptly. When more days pass without a word from Taylor, she files a formal missing persons report. This launches the police to open up an official investigation. And they first look at the most obvious suspect who could be behind Taylor's disappearance, Jeff, her ex-husband. But while the exes were not on the best terms at the time of her vanishing, and they certainly had a tumultuous history, there was nothing indicating that Jeff had anything to do with her having gone missing. Remember, at the time, he lived far away, in North Carolina. And without any evidence pointing in his direction, the police turned their attention to the two people who were admittedly with Taylor on the day she was last seen. Cassandra, and Ashley, and they had good reason to take a closer look at Cassandra. Investigators soon learned that everything was not all sunshine and rainbows in her and Taylor's relationship. That summer, Taylor had confessed two things to Cassandra that had blindsided her and almost split them up. First, she had admitted she had secretly been seeing another woman in Biloxi, Mississippi, behind Cassandra's back. And second, she confessed that she had also tried cocaine three times. They had argued over Taylor cheating and her drug use, but by September, they had seemingly worked through all of that, enough so that they had decided to take their relationship to the next level by moving in together. But still, investigators couldn't help but wonder whether Cassandra was still bitter over Taylor cheating on her and lying to her. Maybe Cassandra had harmed her in the heat of the moment while the couple was in an argument. I mean, it wouldn't be the first time that infidelity drove someone to murder. And their suspicions are only heightened when they look at some of the text messages Cassandra had sent Taylor shortly after she had reportedly gone missing. Text messages that indicated Cassandra was angry with Taylor and that she suspected she was with the woman she had cheated on her with. And yes, while Cassandra had been the first to voice her concern over Taylor not showing up after a couple of days had passed and had been the one to report her missing, during that initial time period, she had also been furious with Taylor over not coming home. So much so. She had asked Ashley to come get Taylor's belongings from her house and to store them at a warehouse owned by Ashley's family business. When police search Cassandra's house, they find some items of interest that lead them to believe Taylor had not left on her own. They find things that she would have had to have taken with her to really go anywhere, like her ID and her passport. And they also find a cashier's check made out in the amount of $19,000 which must have been a portion of the $100,000 she had withdrawn from the joint bank account. But if she was taking off and going into hiding to escape all the legal drama she was dealing with, wouldn't she have wanted to take that money with her? Which also leads police to ask the next logical question, where was the rest of it? While they work to try and figure that out, they reach out to Ashley, the last person known to have been with Taylor taylor and ashley were actually really good friends they had met through ashley's husband zach who had worked in law enforcement and connected with taylor through her work as a private investigator ashley also had a background in law enforcement herself she had worked as a crime scene technician at some point but at the time was working for her family's company called pensacola automatic amusement which supplied things like pool tables and jukeboxes to local pool halls and businesses. Ashley meets with investigators and recounts everything she and Taylor had done the day she went missing. In this initial interview, Ashley is relaxed and forthcoming. She doesn't show any signs of being nervous or like she's hiding anything. She tells them where she and Taylor had been that day including that trip they had made to Ashley's family farm in Milton. The detectives ask her if there were any other locations they had visited, but Ashley tells them no, that was it. They also ask her about any other properties that Ashley's family may own in the area. And she mentions another farm owned by her aunt, but at the time she couldn't recall the exact address. And besides, she tells them Taylor had never been there. At the end of the interview with Ashley, investigators aren't sure what direction to head in. Everything about Taylor's disappearance was strange. On one hand, police knew Taylor had recently come into possession of a significant amount of money. She was involved in a hostile legal battle over that money, and she had the experience and knowledge to fall off the map if she wanted to. But she was also described as a devoted mom who would never abandon her son, and a skilled private investigator who was dedicated to her work. It wouldn't be until 18 days into their investigation that the blurry picture of what had happened to Taylor finally began to come into focus for investigators, because that's when they got back Taylor's phone records, and that's when they realized Ashley wasn't telling them the truth. The phone records showed Taylor's phone pinging off a cell tower 45 minutes away from the farm in Milton where Ashley had said they had spent most of their afternoon. It's a big enough discrepancy that police know they have to dig deeper into Ashley and even her husband Zach to get a clearer understanding of their interactions with Taylor. With bank records and cell phone records for Taylor and Ashley in hand, they call Ashley back to the police station for a second interview, about a month after their first sit-down. This time, there wasn't a question that investigators asked Ashley that they didn't already know the answer to. First, they questioned Ashley on Taylor's involvement in Ashley's business account. After discovering that Taylor's name had been added to that account around the same time she had withdrawn that hundred grand. Found some some bank records mm-hmm. that drew some questions. Um, can you tell me anything about you and and Taylor and any sort of involvement with any businesses? Um, she needed to put like money and whatever, and she also wanted to do some of the stuff with my t-shirt business and stuff as well with her Taeco. And so we added her to my purely Southern um, little account. While Ashley tries to explain this away by saying Taylor's name had been added to the account as part of her joining Ashley's t-shirt business venture, the detectives keep circling back to this business account because of what Ashley had neglected to mention entirely in her first interview with police. In reviewing Ashley's bank records, they noted that Taylor's money had been deposited into that business account, and they pay the most attention to one cashier's check in particular, made out in the amount of $34,000. When Ashley tries to explain why Taylor's money was being deposited into the account, she's kind of all over the place. She tells them that Taylor was putting that money towards inventory for Ashley's t-shirt business, But when she's pressed on the details of their business arrangement, she says they hadn't worked that out yet. And then she mentions how she had lent Taylor money at a time when Taylor was having issues with her own bank account. So some of that money was Taylor paying her back. But then she also says that Taylor had wanted to put the money in the account to hide it from her ex-husband. So which one was it? Was Taylor giving her this money as part of a business arrangement? Or was she paying her back for money she owed her? Or was she giving it to her to hide the money from her ex? When detectives ask Ashley who had deposited Taylor's checks into the account, she admits it was her. But she tells them it was at Taylor's request. And she denies ever having to sign the checks for Taylor. Except detectives know better. The signature on the checks don't match Taylor's a fact they confront Ashley with. Is this that check you were talking about earlier? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's totally could be explaining what's wrong. Well. Yeah, that's why. That, that thing was, uh, we're trying Do you know whose signature that is? is? Mmm. says Taylor's name, but it doesn't really look like her signature. Would you have maybe wrote her name on there by chance? Probably not. And look, if, if y'all are on the account together and you have oh. permission to, oh, well, that's what we're getting at is do you have permission to. Oh, I didn't. I mean, she told me to deposit all the checks that I deposited. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not an issue with me. I just need to. If you wrote that, that's fine. I just need to know if you wrote it. I didn't, but I, I mean, it doesn't look like her signature to me either. Did Zach, I've written her name on there. I mean, I know that I deposited this. But the signature on the checks isn’t the only thing that doesn’t match up. Ashley had been evasive about the existence of a second family farm owned by her aunt in her first interview, telling investigators then that her family did own another property in the area, but that she couldn’t recall where it was exactly which was curious once detectives learned that the second farm was located on Britt Road and Britt was Ashley's middle name. Repeatedly, she had dodged questions about this farm in her conversations with police. Clearly, she was hiding something in connection with that property and she was trying her hardest to keep it off the detective's radar. The problem with that is Cell phone towers don't lie, and the records showed that she and Taylor had actually spent a considerable amount of time at that farm on Britt Road, not at the family farm out in Milton, like she had originally told police. When police confront her with this evidence, Ashley pivots from her original story and for the first time says they had gone out to that farm to retrieve a mysterious lockbox Taylor was keeping on the property. What were y'all doing out here at this farm? Did know y'all were there? We picked up some um, stuff that Taylor had there that, we, what was that? that she had stored. Uh, some kind of lockbox that she had. Why would you not tell us that? Originally? Because she asked me not to tell anyone ever. not I gotcha. Okay. Did you catch that? When Ashley tried to tell the detectives that the reason she hadn't mentioned this mysterious lockbox earlier was because Taylor had asked her not to say anything about it, ever, the detective responded, that's not going to fly. But detectives had not brought Ashley in just to question her on what they had discovered in the cell phone records and the bank statements. They were also distracting her while police executed a search warrant on that farm located on Britt Road, where they suspected they would find whatever it was that Ashley was so desperately trying to hide. And they did. Police finally find Taylor. Her remains are uncovered along a fence line in a wooded area on the 23-acre farm located on Britt Road. Her body is skeletonized, and covered with potting soil and concrete mix. There is a hole in the back of her skull that a medical examiner would later confirm was the single gunshot wound that took her life. Ashley is arrested that same day and charged with first-degree premeditated murder. If you're wondering why Ashley would kill Taylor, one of her closest friends, we're gonna to have to take a step back and follow the money. In the prosecutor's closing argument on Ashley's trial, she laid out the money trail that started with Taylor's withdrawal of that $100,000. When Taylor withdraws that money in July 2013, she immediately went about dividing it up, which was her attempt to keep it from her ex-husband. As part of that effort, She entrusted Ashley with $30,000 in cash and a $34,000 cashier's check to hold in a safety deposit box Ashley kept at her bank. The thing was, that deposit box, it actually didn't exist. Instead, bank records show that Ashley forged Taylor's signature on the check and deposited it into that business account Taylor had been added to. That money, together with the cash Taylor had given her to hold, was spent over the next two months on a lot of different things, but primarily on large purchases for a man Ashley was having an affair with. His name was Brandon Beattie. Aside from spending that money on Brandon, she also paid some bills and credit card debt before the money was gone. When a hearing date was set on Jeff's motion for contempt in September, Taylor had grown panicked. She needed to gather some of the money to place it in an escrow account under court order, or she would be facing jail time. So she started to text Ashley, telling her they had to get to the bank and to that safety deposit box to get her money before the hearing. But Ashley had kept giving her the runaround until finally they agreed to get together on September 8th to go to the bank. Except Ashley knew the money wasn't there. Instead of going to the bank, she took Taylor out to her family farm on Britt Road and shot her once in the back of the head as part of her calculated plan to silence Taylor's constant pleas to her friend to return the money she had asked her to hold as a favor. Ashley pled not guilty to the murder charge, but the testimony against her at trial was too incriminating for her to overcome. Her lover, Brandon, testified to the gifts she had given him that were paid for with Taylor's money. Another good friend of hers, Audrey Warner, testified about a comment Ashley had made to her that Taylor was not a good person and that she planned to give Taylor beer filled with cocaine in an attempt to have her overdose. A plan as it turns out that she actually did attempt to execute on the 8th but failed out miserably when the beer she gave Taylor tasted so horrible she spit it back out. And then there were the cell phone records which not only showed that Taylor and Ashley had been at the Britt Road farm together on the day she went missing, but that Ashley had kept Taylor's phone with her after murdering her, even taking it with her to a wedding she attended out of state. There were also the bank records showing the forged deposits and even video security footage from Home Depot, which captured Ashley the day after Taylor went missing purchasing the potting soil and a quick set concrete mix she used to cover Taylor's body. The jury heard all of this evidence, as well as evidence showing that it had been Ashley, not Taylor, that had sent that final text message to Cassandra, telling her she was taking time to herself. And shockingly enough, it hadn't only been Cassandra that Ashley had communicated with while impersonating Taylor after she was dead. She had even gone as far as texting Taylor's young son, Drake, who was six at the time, when he tried calling his mom the day after she disappeared. After a four-day trial, it took the jury only two hours to find her guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, and Ashley was sentenced to life with a mandatory minimum of 25 years. Taylor's murder was tragic and frightening when you think about the fact it was a consequence of her asking a friend for a favor. In an interview for Oxygen Show, Buried in the Backyard, Cassandra reflects on Taylor's death, saying, I never saw it coming. That's what's scary. And it is scary, given how callous, cold, and manipulative. Ashley had been after Taylor entrusted her with her money and how easily Ashley had lied during her interviews with police in an attempt to throw off their investigation. At one point, she even had gone as far to imply that Taylor likely wasn't who everyone had thought she was. You know, because you think you know somebody, you think you try to help them, and then then you come to find out, like, You have no clue who they are. And it's just like, what? The irony of those words coming out of the mouth of a monster in disguise like her. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. And if you like the show, please show it some love by giving it a rating and leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can follow us on social media on Instagram at the stranger you know Podcast, and on Twitter at T-S-Y-K-P-O-D. If you have a story about someone you thought you knew who turned out to be a stranger, email it to TheStrangerYouKnowPodcast at gmail.com and I'll share it on a future episode. Until then, trust no one. To use a lie detector That's how you can tell someone's lying Mhm What if you don't have a lie detector though We do I don't know